podcast. We are so happy that you're here and we have with us today, Amy, and we're so excited that she's going to share her journey with reoccurrent loss um, and just kind of tell us about everything she's been through. So hi, Amy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So I kind of want to start off the podcast just announcing the elephant in the room. Amy is currently pregnant and 12 weeks today. Today. Yeah. That is so this pregnancy we've had. Yeah. And I can't believe it. It's very surreal. Like pushing myself every day. I know I wouldn't, I can't imagine being 12 weeks pregnant either. Yeah. I know I shared that with you coming from so many losses. So I just kind of wanted to preface, like, we're going to be speaking about loss and grief while Amy's in a headspace of hope and excitement. So we'll try to get into a lot of it. Yeah, I will say too, I mean, the anxiety of um, pregnancy, especially after recurrent loss never goes away. So as much hope as I have, it's like, I do have this like baseline anxiety that it's just, it feels like it's just always going to be there. Yeah. Um, Kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop, even though I don't want it to. It's just, I think it's a protective mechanism of my brain. I I completely agree. And we're going to do some of the Q and A's, but those were the majority of the questions, right? Like, how do you have hope? How do you you wake up every day thinking that, okay, now it's like 12 weeks in one day, but I would love for you to just start off maybe like in the very, from the very, very beginning, like how long you guys have been trying to conceive and kind of walk us through what those, what that timeline looks like. Yeah. So uh, my husband and I met in 2015, we met on Tinder. So we're a Tinder success story and um, we got married in February, 2019. So I had been off birth control since 2016 and we were just, you know, using condoms. Um, I felt like birth control kind of made me crazy. So we got married and like, I am, you know, we are that couple that everyone despises because we conceived on our wedding night. Um, was shocking. Um, you know, I knew by my app I was ovulating, but you don't expect it to happen. And I had had friends who had walked through, you know, infertility and loss. So I was, that was always in the back of my mind. Um, but so when I took a test, I was actually a little later than like, I should have taken a test earlier, but I didn't really think it would happen. And like, we, you know, it's like the post-wedding high, um, I bought ovulation test kits and I peed on them and they got darker every day. So I was like, what, when am I ovulating? You know, what's going on? And so I Googled it and it was like, take a pregnancy test and it was positive. So that was in March of 2019, April, we had our first scan. Um, and I will say, I mean, that first pregnancy, I was very anxious. I'm not sure if it was a combination of it happening so quickly or me knowing maybe that there was something that was not going to go right. So our first scan, measuring well, heartbeat of 160, um, went home, was told to come back. You know, we scheduled the nuchal translucency scan for a few weeks later. Um, I think I was nine weeks at my first scan. And um, two days later, started spotting. The next day, I started passing clots called my clinic, you know, bed rest, drink water, ended up in the ER on Easter Sunday. They confirmed it was a miscarriage. They said it was complete, went home. um, And I was still basically having contractions and it was absolutely awful. Um, You know, I, I never heard miscarriage described as labor, labor prior to having one. And that's exactly what it is. You know, I think depending on what point you're at. So um, it was a Sunday, we were in the ER Wednesday, I went back to my OB and I was still dilated and they did an an emergent D&E. And at that time, we had opted not to get the pregnancy tested, basically encouraged by our OB not to because I was 32, it was likely chromosomal, it's expensive, um, you know, all the things that you're just like, okay, well, I guess I won't get this because they're encouraging me not to. Um, 
And so that was kind of, you know, the start of some very low moments. Absolutely. I have, I have like full body chills as you described that whole experience because I, Amanda and I chat about it and I don't know if we've already released that episode or not, but about the active labor of miscarriage, especially really horrible. It's horrible. And no one talks about it. It's like, and people, you know, I think you tell your friends and your family, like what happened and it's like, they just think your period came and it's like, not that at all. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was on the floor, like crying. My mom had to come over because I was fully having contractions. Like it was, yeah. And and I think, I think you don't realize their contractions in the moment because you're just like, I'm miscarrying. You don't necessarily think about it, but hindsight's 2020 and it's just like, yep. Oh my God. Awful. I could not have said that better. So, I mean, I feel really silly. I didn't realize your first miscarriage was number one. So traumatic. Number two, you know, hearing the heartbeat being nine ish weeks. And I know we'll kind of walk along the next steps, but is that, was that like your second longest pregnancy? That was, yeah. So that was my longest other than this one. And it was, you know, completely unexpected because it was our first. And I think, you know, my doctor, my OB had, I was a new patient to the clinic because my old, I old OB wasn't delivering. So I had to go to a new clinic and they were wonderful, but you know, I had seen like three different doctors by the time I had my, um, my first scan, my appointment after the incomplete loss. And then my surgeon was a different OB and she was just like, this is so traumatic. Like you just saw the heartbeat, like, you know, the chances of that happening are like 1% or less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the ultrasound tech in the ER was completely unprofessional. So she, you know, they're not supposed to say anything. I know sometimes they do. And sometimes we want them to, because we're just like, just tell us, like, we know something's wrong, right? So we're like, is anything in my uterus? And she was like, no, but you have a bicornuate uterus. This is so cool. I've never seen it clinically. And like, looking back, it's like, who says that? Like, Especially I'm in healthcare. And I would never tell a patient like their disease state was cool. Well, number one, that number two, did you even know you were diagnosed with that at that time? No, I didn't even know I had it. And she was wrong. It was a uterine septum. So I will, I, I had a very similar situation when I was getting my follow-up for a miscarriage, they did a 3d ultrasound and she said, Oh, it looks like you have an arcuate uterus and it creates terror. Does because then I didn't think about it then, but the next day, you know, you go home and Google it and you're like, oh my God, you know, increased risk for second trimester loss. And it's just like this whole spiraling. And, you know, my husband, I had went to the bathroom at one point and, you know, he made a comment to the tech, like your job must not be easy, you know, having some of these cases. And she's like, oh yeah, ergonomically, it's just not great on my back. And it's just like, please tell me you're not still with them. <laughs> that, that was an ER and it was night shift. So like, okay. there's okay. definitely, we'll give her a little slack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after but, that happened, did you guys take a break? Did you jump right back in? So I went to my follow-up with my OB, um, who was my surgeon. She was absolutely wonderful. Um, my biggest thing was like, I need to get into a therapist, start therapy. Cause I, you know, I have a history of anxiety and like depression. And I just knew I needed to talk to someone about this and they had no resources to give me, um, which is just that disgusting. That is the saddest thing ever. That it's is- just I am a, so I'm a counselor. We fail women every day in the healthcare system. And I can't even, and I cannot even believe that. Yeah. yeah. But, and you know, she said, she's like, I Googled, I found these things. And like, I appreciated her doing that, but I ended up finding my own therapist. Mm-hmm. But I had mentioned the bicornuate uterus. And I asked if we could do like a saline infused sonogram. So we did. Um, she agreed to that and we found uterine polyps. So they couldn't tell if I did have a bicornuate uterus, but she found polyps and she's like, we don't know if these were there before or they came after, but this could be a factor. So let's remove them. Could you tell us what that is? Just, I know for me or just for listeners in general that may not know what that is exactly. Could you just kind of briefly describe it? Yeah. So the saline sonogram were the polyps. 
They're like both. I mean, just okay. so people know. Yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah. So the saline sonogram, they um, put a small catheter up through your um, cervix and they just basically dilate your uterus with saline. So fluid um, and then do ultrasound so they can get a clearer picture. Um, so you can see some, I think see some patency like within the fallopian tubes, but it basically shows if there's like, if there is um, a uterine anomaly with the shape. And then polyps can be just be like tiny little um, gross, you know, there's like polyps and fibroids. Fibroids are usually more embedded into the uterus. And polyps are almost like, if you look at pictures of them, they almost look like little lollipops. That's a good description. That's a great description. And, and that, and, and they can, and they can just come with your cycle, right? They can be hormone driven. So it's like, I had this miscarriage and it's like, I had this huge hormone decrease. So it's this huge shift. So we don't know where they came from. That is such, that is such a great point because I remember I had had a miscarriage and then a couple days later I went to my original, um, I like my, the IVF physician and we did our baseline and everything was like all over the place. And I was just like, okay, let's do this again because I I just miscarried and my hormones, I don't think this is accurate. And we did it again and it wasn't. So I, that's a really great point. Yeah. And I think I had gotten that done like before my my first cycle post loss, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, and you know, obese don't test hormones. Right. So like, I mean, I've never gotten a beta drawn by my OB, even after my DNA, they never trended my beta down, which like I didn't know about betas until like I went into the RE world. And then it's like, you don't want to know about them once you do. (laughs) Yeah. I I said that in one of our last podcasts, I'm like beta hell. That's the last thing. Once you know what a beta is, you're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, it was like end of June, July, we did a hysteroscopy. So that's when they go up into your, they dilate your cervix, go up into your, um, uterus and, um, they, took the polyps out. Um, they couldn't tell if I, she didn't think I had a bicornerate uterus. She said, maybe arcuate, but arcuate isn't a, really associated with any loss. So not to worry about it. So we were kind of cleared to start trying. Um, so by August we were pregnant again. And, um, you know, that pregnancy I had called, I found out pretty early because I became an early tester at that point. <laughs> um, so I think I found out like right before my period was due a few days before um, called, they had me do an early scan and I was supposed to be like seven weeks and I was measuring like six weeks, two days. They saw the yolk sac, but no fetal pole. And they were like, oh, your dates are off. This was in September. Um, your dates are off. And I'm like, I don't think they are like, yeah we know when we ovulate for the most part. Oh like, yeah. If you're trying, like Especially you know. if you're trying, you're tracking everything. <laughs> <laughs> like I know they just try to do peace of mind, but sometimes you're just like, no, I know my dates are right. Yeah. So um, they were like come back in a week. And at that point I was like, this isn't going to go well. Um, so a week later, it was my 33rd birthday. The next day I woke up spotting and I was like, shit. Um, it was a Sunday morning and so I called first thing Monday morning and they brought me in and there was no growth. Um, so it was a blighted ovum. Oh my gosh, Amy. I didn't know you had a blighted ovum too. I did. I, yes. I did too with my third. Wow. And it was just like devastating because it's like all of a sudden, like, I mean, I can't tell you my OB was so hopeful, you know, the anesthesiologist who put me down, put me, put me down, put me under. <laughs> was like, I promise, like, I'm going to be giving you your epidural when you have your baby. And it's like, you just have this hope that like, miscarriages happen. They're so common. Um, and then with this second, it was like, okay, like something is not right. Like yeah, what the hell is going fine. on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at that point I was more angry. Um, I started to miscarry naturally. Um, and then it was taking a little bit, taking a while. So I did the misoprostol or the cytotech to just keep it going. 
I did not have a horrible experience with that. I know some have had nightmare experiences. The worst um, experience. That was me yeah. on the floor. That yeah. you. That's amazing. You did not have a bad experience, but I have also heard that it's almost like 50, 50. It's either right. the worst and, or nothing. Yeah. And was it not as bad because I had already started to miscarry naturally? And my doctor really just wanted to ensure like there weren't going to be any retained products. And at that point I was like, I don't really want to undergo another DE or DNC because then you worry about like scar tissue and all of that stuff. So, um, and it was too early to test the pregnancy. So she was kind of like, okay, here are your options. We can start some of the fertility testing here, here, or I can send you to an RE. And I was just kind of like, I love you. I trust you. But like, I want to go to someone who does this every day. And she was like, that makes me feel better because I don't want to miss anything. Sure. So um, at this point we are in Jacksonville. So there's three clinics in Jacksonville. We had two opinions. They got me in pretty quick. So they got, this was September, 2019. Both clinics, I think, got me in either end of September and early October. Um, And the one clinic was like, you have endometriosis likely, and it's probably a uterine septum. So those are like your main issues. So can I ask real quick, did you have any, any signs of endometriosis? So looking back, I mean, I was like, I didn't get my period till I was like 17. I had heavy periods, but never to where I missed school or anything like that. Just heavy bleeding, longer cycles. Um, I have a pretty good pain tolerance. I would call it for me like silent endo. But I think looking back after my surgery, there were like little things like sex wasn't as uncomfortable, you know, like certain times, like having bowel movements, like just little things that I'm like, and my periods were lighter. So I think I thought it was silent, but I don't think it was as silent as I thought. I just think I didn't really, you know, I was put on birth control for like 10 years because of these heavy periods. So like putting a bandaid on the bigger problem. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it was stage two to three. So it was all over my bladder um, my, my, um, colon, my upper or like, um, upper peritoneal space. It wasn't on my tubes or my uterus, but it was basically everywhere else. So I was just reading and it's so funny. I asked you that question because we recorded last weekend and our guest had the same thing. She had silent endometriosis and she said exactly what you just said, that she considered it silent until after her surgery. And then she goes, oh my gosh, all these things changed that I didn't even know were an issue. Yeah. So I was doing research on silent endo just personally myself and I didn't realize, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but just having the endo, like say it's not on your uterus or on your tubes, like you're saying, it can cause that inflammatory response yeah. in the environment, which we'll get into. you you went down the reproductive immunology road. Yeah. Um, so that's, I didn't know that until about three it's, hours it's ago. It's so interesting. And like, you know, I think there's some, some theories that endo is like autoimmune. And then there's some like people that don't believe it is, but I definitely think there's some sort of autoimmune component. I mean, my mom's sister had it. Um, my mom has had several losses. I think my mom probably has it. I think my mom's mom had it. Like there's definitely a family component. So it's definitely genetic. And I definitely, I do think there is an immune component just because of the inflammatory response. Yeah, exactly. So you identified you had endo through laparoscopic surgery? Yes. So at that point we're in September, we just, the other clinic we went to, he was basically, you don't even meet the criteria for recurrent loss. Like, I'm not going to say you can't be here, but like, we would do the testing and everything is like, okay, I would recommend you try again. And I was like, oh, and have another loss. And he's like, yeah. If you, if everybody could see my face, <laughs> that makes me so mad. I mean, we left that building. I was like, nope, we're not going to him. Good like it you. was, you know, so Thankfully you, we had a choice and, you know, it's not like we were able to go with the other clinic, but it's like, I can see how people get dismissed and just go, you know, they go home and they're like, well, I guess nothing's wrong. Yeah. 
which is sad. So at that point, we had tried to get my beta down. November, I started like cycle testing. So we did everything. Tubes were clear. They identified I likely had a uterine septum. My labs were fine. My AMH was like on the lower side. Um, but since then, it's gone up. So I don't know. It was drawn on like a cycle where my HCD wasn't completely down yet. So I don't, you know, it's cycle-based. Was it the endo when it came back up after that? Um, but everything else looked good. Um, we did my surgery in January of 2020. I like can't believe how much time has passed. I know. Um, and that's when they found the stage two to three endo and uterine septum. Um, they found some tubal cysts that they removed, which were normal. Um, my left fallopian tube was like stuck together. So they did like a fimbrioplasty to make sure it could like, you know, grab the egg. Wow. That's so interesting. So like, Cause like you got pregnant twice. I know. And I'll have to, I'll have to send you the picture on Instagram of what he drew after my surgery. Cause like you yes. see how much was going on and you're like, how did I even get pregnant? Um, especially and so fast, like it didn't take you a long time. To right. Like that is right. so interesting. It's, it's crazy. And I, you know, I think after meeting people on Instagram, it's like, you find these people who like me, like you have, like, it's, it's like a blessing and a curse because you can get pregnant so quickly, but then it's like, why am I even getting pregnant if I'm going to lose so exactly hard? because and you're people paying. are, yeah, yeah people I, are very like, Oh, people just get pregnant so quick. You're so fertile. Like, you know, I had the friends who would roll their eyes, like, Oh, you're pregnant again. And it's just, Oh, like, for sure. I, you have no idea. I know. Like, like I would miscarry. And three weeks later I was sending texts to my closest friends. Like, well, I'm, they're asking like, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm pregnant again. Um, but like, I, you don't, I know, you know, Amy, but like, we're, I'm pay, you pay three to 800 to $2,000 per miscarriage, depending yeah. if you have the DNC with all the extra testing. Yeah. I mean, miscarriage itself will equal a full pregnancy delivery very quickly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then the bills keep coming for stuff yeah. that you're like, wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the bills. And yeah. I know you haven't gotten to where you've tested any of the embryos yet, but like the bills for the genetic testing, you're just like, it's, Oh my God. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. Okay. So after so, you had the endo removed. So we had that surgery. Um, I had my follow-up and I was kind of like, he's going to be like dry and like everything's fixed. Right. Cause you feel like they're like, everything is like fine now. I did like the, they did a saline infused sonogram after everything looked good um, with the septum removal. And he came in and he was like, you know, you're 33. How many kids do you want? And we're like, you know, two to three, three, ideally this was back in the day. And now I'm like, we can get one. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> True. Um, and he was like, I recommend IVF for embryo preservation, not necessarily for your first child, but you know, you're not getting younger. Ideally, if you got pregnant a year after you gave birth, you know, you'd be this age and you know, it made sense, but it was kind of like a bomb drop. Cause you're like, wait, like, but I don't have any problems getting pregnant. Yes. And I think at that time I was still naive to the process because you're just like, well, is an IVF for people who can't get pregnant? Why do we need it? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think we are very lucky in that we do have coverage for IVF um, up to $35,000. So, so lucky that is um, for that. It is. My husband's company we, takes care of him. Yeah, we thought we did. So it was like the craziest thing, which I mean, I'm sure other people's insurance also like has said something like this, but like ours said that they covered it. And then when we actually went down to it, they didn't cover it. So it was like the worst roller coaster, which you're already going through so much as yeah. is. And add in the financial component. So that is, amazing. I mean, that really made the decision for us. I think if we didn't have that insurance coverage, I don't think we would have at that point, you know, it's like we, a year prior, we just spent all this money on a wedding, like oh, yeah. just trying to, you know, you save for a house at this point And you're like, we have to like be able to live somewhere. And that I don't was, know if we could have, 
That was one of the hardest things for me. And I think Amy, you're in a similar mindset moving into IVF when you were is like, we aren't one of those couples where that's the only option. That's it. Right. We're like, well, we could do this by ourselves. We just don't know how, you know, we don't know what the outcome is going to look like. Right. Right. For sure. So, you know, it's February, 2020, we have no idea what's coming. Um, and then I started birth control in March. Um, was supposed to start my cycle in April. Thankfully, like we didn't even have like a baseline or my beds um, started yet. So it's not like the cycle was um, canceled and I, we lost meds. Um, But, you know, we got that call call from the clinic that was like, we're stopping treatment, which I knew was going to happen. Like, I mean, hospitals were stopping elective surgeries. It was like a matter of time. But it's just like, you know, and this was when you were in Florida. Of... Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's like the world kind of stopped and you're like, and during, you know, the pandemic, I think at one point I had seven pregnant friends and it was an absolute nightmare. And I, you know, trying to be the supportive friend I am, like, I wouldn't, I know both of you feel this way. You wouldn't want anyone to go through what you have been through, but it's like, why us yeah you know like those people who are getting pregnant were the ones like it's like the unsolicited advice was like yeah I I had tell you how many people it was like oh you guys just got married it happened so quick like just enjoy and I'm just like or uh, like I had friends during the pandemic where they announced they were pregnant and I was like I thought you guys didn't want kids they're like yeah well we were bored in the house and I'm like (laughs) didn't even try it just happened yeah 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 so um luckily it wasn't um we didn't have to wait too long my retrieval cycle started in May they started back up um so that was I mean everything went well for the most part I tolerated the meds you know as best as I could um we got 14 eggs I don't remember how many were mature, 11 embryos fertilized. We had six blasts to day five and five out of six were genetically normal. Jealous. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I mean, our outcome was not normal at all. Yeah. And I think it proved to my RE that like these miscarriages were not likely chromosomal. Maybe one was. Um, and I think looking back at all my pregnancies, obviously some of these pregnancies were not normal. It was a dropping a bad egg. Um, it was not right from the start, but I think like our IVF cycle really proved that like, this isn't a chromosomal or egg quality or sperm issue. Yeah. So similar to you, Kat, then, right? Well, yeah, I didn't, I, I want to get into the question about what made her do immunology with the first round of IVF, because I pushed for it heavily and was shot down, but we'll go, we'll get to that. So, so had- yeah, so, so we didn't, so the immune co- component wasn't even brought up at this point. Yeah. Cause I didn't realize you did IVF at this point a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, you know, I think I confused a lot of people we'll get to this when we talk about my transfer. Um, because I developed OHSS because of my transfer protocol. Um, so people were confused. They're like, wait, your embryos like are from 2020, but oh, you yeah, I got, yeah, I got very confused yeah. when you were telling me because I, we had just done our transfer at the exact same time. We were like two days off and yeah. she's talking yeah. about having, um, what is it? OHSS or something The yeah. And I'm like, but yeah. I thought you already had embryos. I'm so confused. Yeah. Yeah. But I did develop mild case of OHSS after um, our cycle, our retrieval. But, you know, it was Lovinox. I was monitored. Things were okay. Um, and it was basically like, okay, you guys just kind of call us when you want to transfer. But at that point, we were like, well, we can get pregnant. Like, let's mm-hmm. just whatever. So I didn't track that cycle after my retrieval. Um my cycle just never, I got that period post egg retrieval five or six days. And then my cycle just never started. It was like, I don't know, 50 days, maybe not 50, maybe like 40. Do not um, tell me you and, got pregnant. Yeah. You got pregnant after an egg retrieval. Yeah. So oh after, 
I, I got it. I got my period after the egg retrieval, but that cycle post that yeah. I got pregnant. Wow. So I called my clinic because I'm like, I just can we do a cycle check? Like my period hasn't started. I've taken pregnancy tests. Like I don't know when I was ovulating because I wasn't tracking. So they do an ultrasound and she's like, wow, your lining looks great. Like, let's just do a beta. It was 25. So it was like low. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, do I, is this just really early? She's like, it looks like you probably just ovulated. So, you know, of course, like I go home and tell my husband, like cautiously optimistic, like they want me to come back the next day for another blood draw. Um, and I, I got a sinking feeling later that day. And that was just like, this isn't going to end well. Cause you start um, to the do next- the math and you're like, Hey, 25, yeah. but then I'm like 10, just- 15 days late and yeah, you become an expert. And, and you think about it and I'm like, you know, like after all those hormones, it's like, what does that cycle even truly look like lab wise? Right. Like how hard does it have to work to get that egg to ovulate after like, you know, so many eggs were produce this last cycle. So the next day I had taken a pregnancy test. I woke up at like 3am, took one, was like barely, like I couldn't even tell. And so I went to the clinic and they were like, did you start bleeding? They had called me and I was like, no. And they were like, great, your beta dropped less than five. So this was a chemical. (sighs) And I'm like, this is a whole new world for me. Cause I'm like, well, what's a chemical pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I know everyone has different opinions on them, but I think as soon as you told you're told you're pregnant, it's like, it's, it's a loss. I agree yeah, with you it's, completely. It's different how, you know, it feels more like, I feel like for the most part a period starting. Um, but it's, it's just like, as soon as you have a positive pregnancy test, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. And it's I've just, had, I've had two chemicals and what maybe even three maybe no I've had three because the IVF cycle was a chemical but my first chemical lasted six about six weeks so that's you know time yeah. you think you're pregnant and the, the tests are getting darker and still right. a chemical because you it's never so basically a chemical never preg- seen on ultrasound yes so a chemical pregnancy is only detected by the chemicals in your blood where a clinical pregnancy is once they can identify it on ultrasonography ultrasound yeah so that was a big blow. Um, and then, you know, the next month my period didn't come and I was pregnant again. And like, I I like don't want people to be like, God, this is so annoying. This is just like, it's it's our story. And it's my story. (laughs) It happens. I mean, like this happens. I mean, look at home. So yeah. And that was like, so quick again, it was like, a very faint line. Like I never even, never even made it to get a beta draw. Mm-hmm. Um, the next line, next day it was like light. And then the next day, barely visible. So it's like, so that's okay. Four, is- that's four at this point, mm-hmm. the heartbeat, mm-hmm. the blinded ovum, two chemicals. Wow. Yes. We have not the same order, but we're identical right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's- and so that was, I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my husband. And it's something that my husband and I had a conversation the next month because I was holding it in because I didn't want to hurt him because I know he was hurting. And, you know, I think we learned a lot about grief and communication post-loss. You know, I think our first miscarriage, we grieved very differently than we did moving forward because I think we really had to learn how to communicate because that you realize like, this can end marriages, right? Like this stuff is raw and hard and people grieve differently and that's okay, but you have to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that piece of it, but then like what you're about to say, probably next, the part of your story, deciding what you do next, because most of the time the husband and the wife or the, that whatever sex couples were not on the same page. No, no. So the next month we had gotten out of town We went to, like, we went, it was still with COVID, but we went to a cabin in Tennessee with another another couple. It was just nice to get away. My period was due when we got back. Did come. And then then, then it stops. I swear that's it. (laughs) Those are fast. Although I will tell you, after every chemical I've had, other than this IVF, because we didn't try, I've gotten pregnant the next month. And those, uh, you know, like, 
maybe like two of them were probably like chromosome, you know, because it's just like not even giving my body time. It doesn't know how to not get pregnant. Exactly. And I've heard, and again, this is not like factual, but I've heard from some OBs, like it, when you do have a chemical pregnancy, your uterus, uterine environment, so susceptible to another pregnancy. So if you're trying immediately after it's going to, it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. So by that point, I like told my husband, I'm just like, something's not right. And, you know, we, at that point I was looking into reproductive immunology I didn't know about Dr. Dabala, who I see in Michigan, but I was looking into the Dr. Um, Vidali in New York with Braverman, yeah. um, ready to send in stuff, but they have like no insurance coverage. And it's, it's so like expensive. Of- I did a new pa- patient paperwork before IVF with Braverman. Yes. And I think it's like $2,500 just to send in your paperwork. Yeah. And then like, once you get pregnant, it's like another three grand, like it's just insane. So I was like, let's hold off. Um, but my period never came after that lighted or that chemical still questionable what it was. So it was October. My period still hadn't come. My texts were negative. So they brought me in for a cycle check. I go in and it's an empty sack. So they don't know if it was a chemical or blighted ovum or what was really going on. Either way, I period didn't come. They had to do, we did Cytotech. It still didn't come. We did Provera. It came. I'm sorry. You did Cytotech and you didn't bleed. I didn't bleed. I thought I was going to, that Cytotech was worse than my blighted ovum. Wait, what is this? I don't know what Cytotech is. It's the same thing. Oh, misoprostol. Sorry. Sorry. Just the generic name. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, wait a second. I'm glad you clarified that. Amy and I are just like, yeah, the drug that we take. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. At that point, I'm like, okay, this isn't working. Like Provera, like, is that normal to give? But then it worked. Like my, you know, I started bleeding because at that point I'm like, are we really going to have to do D and, you know, like it was, I even really pregnant? Like what is going on? Um, and it was just, I mean, a complete mind game because at that point, like it had been like, I don't know, almost two months. So I had another sit down with my RE and he was basically like, this is bad luck. You just need to transfer embryos. And I was just like, this can't, I can't have this much bad luck. Like not when I, not when I get pregnant so easily. That's gotta be the hardest thing to hear. Like it was, I mean, it got worse. Like as, as time went on with them, it was like, I was told I was too type A. I need to stop stressing. Like everything you don't want to hear as a fertility patient. I was just like the 60 something year old man is just telling me like these things. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? I'm six losses in as well. And they're (laughs) still telling me it's bad luck. And to do, just get some more embryos. So I really want to touch on what's next for you and the immunology piece of this. Yeah. So at that point, he's like transfer. I'm like, let's do a medicated cycle. Let's create a good egg or, you know, what we hope will be a good egg, ovulate one or two and see what happens. And I think I needed to know, like, was this, I mean, I think I kind of knew it was immune, but I, I, my biggest thing was I did not want to waste those embryos because I, I, I mean, like swear on my life that if we transferred, I would have a chemical or another loss. Sure. And I think too, you want to do everything before you move into immunology therapy because it's so intense. Yes. So January we did, we took a break for the holidays. We started the cycle in January. We did letrozole and thought stem. I had like four or five follicles. They triggered, um, you know, I was on progesterone, um, supplements. I tested the day before beta. I had like a fade line. And again, I was like, this is too late for where it should be. The next day my beta had come back at eight. So I was like, you're another chemical. Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another chemical. And that day I was on the phone with Dr. Duala's clinic starting new patient paperwork. So I was yeah. like, we're done. Yeah. Like, not enough. 
Well, you, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Will you, okay. So this is like where the meat of the podcast goes. Yes. So reproductive. Sorry. I feel like my story was so long until then. No. Oh my gosh. No. It's so important of how we got here. So will you just talk about what Durbola is, what they offer? And then I guess really yeah. now you've had five, is that right? Five miscarriages? Yeah, so that was five. Okay. Um, wait. Did I'm you on my eighth pregnancy? Oh, you're on your eighth. That, that was six. Six. Yeah, okay, so six. I'm assuming we're gonna get into the ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, but okay. we'll talk. So we'll talk about the immune component. So, yeah. um, we I you know got myself into Durbala. Doctor Durbala is in Michigan. He's a reproductive immunologist. So they basically focus on the immune component. Um, there's a lot of theories like the immune system is attacking these embryos, which if you think about it, pregnancy is the only time our body allows like a foreign thing to happen in our body, right? So for a small population of patients, it makes sense that like their immune system doesn't allow that. Um, There's some theories as to why uh, maybe you and your spouse are almost too genetically normal. So you would have like, I needed a transplant, my husband might be the perfect match, but for creating an embryo, it's like too perfect and the body won't allow it. How um, interesting. I've never heard that before. That's so yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't gotten that testing done because it doesn't change the treatment. Mm-hmm. I think if we had to dive a little bit deeper, I would want to just to I think it could possibly like determine if we were closing this door and moving on to like surrogacy. Um, But so I sent my paperwork in um, and it was like a wait list. So I think at that point it was like two to three months and they basically want you to come in um, five to seven days after ovulation. and they do, because they do a uterine biopsy, they check for elevated natural killer cells in your uterus. They do a whole panel of blood work. I think I had like, I don't know, 20 some vials done. They do a blood flow ultrasound to check the blood flow to your uterus. So. And now are I you said, living in Florida still? Because you said this mm-hmm. is in Michigan. So this is in Michigan, um, but you only have to fly out for the first appointment. And then if you get pregnant, they recommend you come out for a blood flow ultrasound during the first trimester. Everything else is telehealth. Um, he does have in-network coverage for my insurance, which was wonderful. I have Aetna. Um, the biggest cost is the Chicago immune testing. Um, they do have discounted rates. My insurance doesn't work with the lab. So we pay the discounted rates and that's where the huge chunk of money comes in or the cost. But I think at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, it's cheaper than some of the other options out there, at least for us. And it's been clearly worth it for you. Yeah. 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 So, um, my cycle didn't start for a while after that loss in 2021, I think it was my body telling us like, don't do anything further with this clinic here in Florida because like, we know you're desperate, but don't, you need to wait. Um, so I got the call in April that we could start cycle testing. My cycle started in April. I flew out in early May because I got my LH surge and we did this testing. Um, and looking back, like, I don't think we had sex during the ovulation window unless I ovulated early or late. Um, but my period was late for three days and I was getting Botox and I was like, well, I guess I should test because I, you know, whatever. And I wasn't even thinking about it because I'm like, I'm not pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I gotten a positive on a digital, which I hadn't gotten in since my second four, pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm laughing so hard about the Botox because I literally just scheduled <laughs> an appointment today. And I was like, I strategically need to make sure because you can't have Botox when you're pregnant. I know. Nursing or nursing. So that's where yeah. I'm at. <laughs> you're like, I need it. <laughs> that's great. So I was like, 
I mean, spiraling because I'm like, oh, at this point we had decided we, my husband had gotten a new job with um, Johnson and Johnson, who he was with down in Florida, but um, my family's up in Pennsylvania. So we wanted to make a move. So at this point I had already interviewed, I say interviewed, but we do interview our doctors, right? So interviewed um, with two clinics, we had chose our clinic. I loved my new RE. She was there totally on board with immune. She thought it was immune. She did not think it was bad luck. She was wonderful. She was on board with working with Herbala. Um, and then I get this positive pregnancy test and I'm like, oh my God, my doctors are going to fire me. Like, <laughs> I am in trouble. Well, well, I don't want to interrupt you, but I think just to kind of clarify, so Derbola is reproductive immunology and Amy, are yes. there only like four of those in the United I think States? There's, I think there's five now. I think there is. So there is Braverman in New York, Dr. Derbala in Michigan, Dr. Clock Kim in um, California? No, she's in, I think she's in Chicago. Okay. No, I think you're right. Um, and then Allen Beer Center in, um, in California. And now there's Dr. Jubiz in Florida. Okay. He does a lot of telehealth and you're- he was trained by Clock Kim. Okay. Yeah. And so basically you get like all this remote monitoring pre-initial stuff with RIs. And then generally you have to find a reproductive endocrinologist that's going to say, okay, I quote unquote, believe in this science, yes. which is super difficult. And then if they yes. do, they have to agree to super make difficult. modifications based off of the RI, correct? Yes. Yes. So you I mean, it's really important to find an RE. I think that's what people struggle with is finding an RE who's going to support that protocol Um, because, you know, the drug regimens, the protocols like are very intense. And I know, you know, there's, there's risk with any medication during pregnancy and some of these immune meds are very intense, but, you know, it's also something that's worked for working for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, it's okay if you have an RE that doesn't support it. Like there are other ones out there that will. It's okay to go somewhere else. Um, so at that point, you know, we I mean, got blood draws. My betas were beautiful. They were doubling and tripling, not indicative of, of an ectopic. I had my first scan down at my clinic in Florida. I think I was five weeks, three days. They didn't see anything in my uterus, but again, it was like, is this early? I don't know. You know, were my tubes evaluated, evaluated? Well, I'm not really sure. Could you have even seen it? I don't know. We moved up North. Um, and my first clinic, my first appointment up here, I was six weeks, three days, six weeks, five days, went in, they saw nothing in my uterus and she saw it on my left tube. And so that was like the first time meeting my new RE and my ultrasound tech. And it was completely devastating. I think probably one of the most devastating during this journey, because I think, you know, after your first miscarriage, you have hope. And after, you know, multiple, you know, six, and then you're on your seventh pregnancy and it's ectopic, you're just at like your lowest low. Like I did not know how I was going to crawl my way out of it. And you had had the hope of the rising betas Yes, everything finally was working. And then with the next And you think, right? Like you're like, this is going to be it. I mean, I was started on progesterone, estrogen, Lovenox twice a day, baby aspirin, prednisone. And I was on the, I was, it was kind of like playing catch up because they ideally, they do like to start that prior to pregnancy, but my labs were looking okay. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, Lovenox is actually a stomach injection. So you had been doing injections, hopeful, and then an ectopic pregnancy. I assume the majority of listeners would know what this is, but it's basically when the pregnancy attaches normally in the fallopian tube, there can be other areas too, correct? Yeah. Yeah, there can. So mine was at, um, mine was at the end of the fallopian tube, like basically on my fimbria, uh, which is like, it's, it's so close and it's on, ironically on the side that they did the fimbrioplasty. So it was, I think if I were going to have an ectopic, I had it in the right place because it's why my tube didn't rupture. Because mm-hmm. that's the da- um, that's the danger is that yes. your tube can rupture. Yeah. You use one tube. Or you my beta got up tube. to like 10,000. Yeah. 
I think after my methotrexate, it got up to 13,000 before it started dropping. So it was pretty high. But by the time I was in my RE's office, I was already bleeding into my belly. They couldn't do surgery because I was on the low binox. So I didn't have an option other than methotrexate, which you're told the risks of, and it's a chemotherapy drug. And, you know, you're not allowed to even start trying to conceive. It's a um, folic acid antagonist. So you're not even allowed to start trying to conceive till three months after, because you have to build back that folic acid in the body. So you're just like, you know, time is just, you know, we lose so much time and then this is just more and you're like, okay, I'll do what I have to do. But it's just like, it's another punch. How is this happening? Oh my goodness. So, you know, I got um, my methotrexate shot, got my second one a few days later, ended up in the ER because I had some pain that was worsening. Thankfully, the chief of OB saw me. I was examining well. My numbers were still high, but she wanted to try and salvage that too because they have worked before, um, which I really appreciate. And then, you know, my numbers just started dropping quicker than we expected. So as scary as methotrexate is, it also does work. So I think I got to a negative beta in mid-July. Okay. Um, and this is all in the midst of, you know, we just moved to a new city. Yeah. Um, we were living with my parents for a month prior to moving into a, our apartment. So the grief on top of the ectopic was horrible because I, just, I didn't want to see anyone. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I feel like anytime you're going through something just like so drastic, all of a sudden, everything else in your life is so chaotic too. <laughs> yeah. Everything piles yeah. on all at once. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So it was a very dark place for a couple months. Um, I would say probably like six weeks. I just wasn't sure if anything would ever work out. And I think looking back to that time now and like looking to where we are, like I'm so glad we kept going, but I, I, it would have been so easy to stop. I, I think that because you can't work. imagine it going right. I, and I'm there right now. So I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that was one of the questions. So, um, somebody asked what kept you moving forward after so much loss? And I don't know if you can even answer it or if you want to try. I mean, I think, I think you go through this journey and everyone has different journeys and like, you realize how much you can take, right? Like it's almost just like a toll and you're just like, how far can you get without breaking, even though this does break us. Um, And I think we just weren't there yet. Like we knew surrogacy has been on my mind. I mean, I know I talked to you about this cat before our transfer. I was like, I was doing research, not heavy research, but like I had accepted that that was likely our next step because at the end of the day, we want a baby. And if I can't carry, like I'm not getting, you know, younger. I just, we the end goal is a baby. Um, but we couldn't move on to that point without trying, without exhausting our options. So I think we had to go through with the medicated cycle. We had to go through with the transfer and see what happens before we move to the next step and like becoming mom and dad outweighs every physical, mental, and emotional barrier. Like we weren't ready to stop wanting to be parents like we knew we were going to get there someday not sure how not sure what it looked like whether it's surrogacy adoption or any of the other beautiful options but I think you know just knowing what the end goal was like kept us moving I yeah you couldn't have said it any better I think you know somebody else mentioned and they mentioned this in one of our episodes that hasn't aired yet but like the desire to have a baby it was much greater than any of the pain that we decided to go through and anything like a like like you're saying becoming mom and dad it's like okay I understand people are telling you to calm down wait take a break but that's not going to heal me any more than getting closer that to becoming a mom exactly Exactly. Totally understand that. And I think anyone in this community can relate to like, when it's all you want, like, you just like, anything. it's not, it's not a choice. You're just going to keep going. And like, it's okay to stop. 
because I think everyone has their limits. And I think it's important to set those boundaries and limits because you can only take so much before this starts to break a marriage, before, you know, this takes a toll on you to a mental health perspective that is like dangerous for yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. that, But establishing those boundaries and limits is important, but it's okay to keep going too. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we need to do like a whole entire episode of like the grieving process and even just like the mental health aspect of it. Cause I feel like that's really not it's, talked about. It's not talked about. And like, yeah. and it's so important though. And especially it's so important too. And obviously just yourself, but even in the marriage too, just working on your mental health as a couple. Yeah. As a I think Absolutely. we totally need to hit on that cat. <laughs> Yeah. And I think like the grief of, you know, pregnancy loss and infertility is unlike any other, you know, I think all types of grief are different, but this is just, I mean, it's just very different um, that people can't understand and that's okay. It's just, it makes it even more isolating. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, I mean, just sticks with you. I mean, obviously it changes, but it just, yeah, it definitely changes. It's something that's always there. I know you're 12 weeks pregnant. I just had um, a baby in November and yeah. I had, I had one loss, but I mean, every scan, every, I mean, all yeah. the way through even delivering, there's still that feeling that just doesn't go away and go away, but yeah. there's so much hope in that too. So there um, is, there is absolutely. Um, so I'll speed it up. July, we did Lupron. Um, because my doctor was kind of concerned, like, is endo back? I want to suppress you. So that was not fun, but we got through it. In August, I had surgery um, to check my tubes. They wanted, they were sure I was going to lose my left tube. My tubes looked great. Um, endometriosis was not back. So September, I started. The Lupron wore off. I took norethindrone for more suppression. We... Um, I started prednisone and then, you know, I stopped North and drone in October and we started our transfer cycle, which, you know, we did a stimming protocol. So we did follow stim and Gana relics. Um, she wanted to use my natural window of implantation. Um, and then we transferred on, on November 10th. So, so exciting. Yeah. I mean, it just, it gives me so much hope to hear your entire story. And if we hadn't led with you're now 12 weeks pregnant, I don't know if even like the outside listener would be like, oh, this is not going to, you know, she's not right. going to get to 12 weeks. I yeah. mean, right. we, you and I have stayed in touch for the 12 weeks of just like, yeah. okay, now it's darker. So the scans are still good. Yeah. There's still a really great yeah. heartbeat. And I mean, how beautiful. It is, it's, I mean, like, pinch me every day. It's so surreal. And I, I mean, each scan I'm terrified and I go through scenarios of like every worst possible case scenario. And, you know, it's, it's hard to accept getting good news after so much bad news and loss. It's, you know, it's truly doesn't feel real. I completely agree. I haven't been on the side of the good news yet, but (laughs) but I know. And and that's, you know, like I've heard, like I listen to podcasts and like you hear these stories and you're hanging on to so much hope because you're like, they're getting there. And it's like, you know, I hope anyone who's listening, like 10, we're not on the other side yet, but like something is working that hasn't worked before. And like, I this immune protocol has, I think, truly made the the whole difference. Um, it hasn't been easy, you know. I think the the blood draws, the Lovenox twice a day. I'm on prednisone. I'm on Prograf, which is an anti-rejection medication, um, combined with the OHSS. I've had some spotting episodes, so it hasn't been easy. But I mean, I would do it over and over again. If, you know, we can continue to get to this point and for further. 
I love that. Um, we shockingly have used our whole hour, believe it or not. <laughs> but, I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. No, this was amazing. I want to give everyone, if you're comfortable with it, maybe your Instagram handle. Just, yeah. I know right now you're not really sharing the ins and outs of the pregnancy. Yeah. But if they want to reach out to you, maybe direct message. Absolutely. I know you're so good at that. I'm an open book. I'm just, I think I'm, I'm almost paralyzed with fear still with sharing because I'm just, I am in this like protective mode of like, I just have to get through each day. So I understandably to share more at some point, but I'm just not there yet. But you can find me at surviving um, underscore loss. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amy, so much. Thank you.